Awesome. Well, welcome to uh, Radio Free Earth, my friend Louis Prow and all of uh, my friends out there. I'm really excited to have you. Uh, Louis's been a friend of mine since the 20th century when his name was Luigi. And uh, he's an adventurer, a mystic, a ex-ad man, has uh, worked all over, the, uh, all over the world in a variety of fields and is, is really a writer at heart. Yeah. And we're here today. Uh, we, we had a, a podcast a long time ago when I first was trying to get the podcast up and running. And, and that was a really good one. And we're here today, though, to discuss uh, Louis's book, Vague Apocalyptica, and kind of maybe the the fallout or where it points to as well. Yeah. Um, I am sorry for putting off reading your book for so long because it's fucking amazing. And I was uh, last night I was I was listening to it again so I could <laughs> write down some quotes from it and I was also setting up uh, my podcast studio I'm still kind of in a rush to set this thing up and uh, the only issue I had is I kind of wanted to quote the whole thing so <laughs> at that point you should just people should just read the book I'm just gonna sit there and read for an hour yeah yeah and uh, one of the things I wanted to say I, I recommended it to a couple friends and I had kind of the same uh, experience you know myself and a lot of our uh, my friends are kind of uh, here I'm gonna take these off because I'm getting a little Although I won't be able to see, that's fine. Just pretend I can see everybody. Um, the first, at least third of the book is intense in its description of where we are and why. And I think it's spot on. And at the same time, it can get a little bit intimidating. Uh, but if you hang in there, um, you begin to also, at the same time that you're describing kind of the the morass or the, 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 the snafu or the situation we find ourselves in, you're also offering... Um, ways out of it through, you know, behaviors of the individual as well as um, collective behaviors of the society. So, oh, um, I had a little intro to read here. So I'm going to sure. forgive my, I'm like a grandma now with these glasses, dude. Uh, oh, yeah, I already know. I It's basically the info I gave you. Um, you lived in Venice. We're doing ad agency stuff, NGO work, and then moved to Italy for a while to write, I believe, Tuscany, right? And then I've been kind of coming back and forth. And I think that uh, you and your field have kind of, uh, I don't want to say hit the wall, but experienced the same thing I did when in, in entering legal cannabis, which is finding that the business world is um, full of narcissistic and sociopathic shark men. And, yeah. you know, after a while of trying to find a way to integrate that and still keep your humanity and integrity, you've really decided to... Um, escape to a sabbatical in the woods to write more and really reconnect into nature and, and what makes you, you. Well, there was That'd a be... series of sabbaticals and then I moved permanently in 2018. Okay. Yeah. Prior to that, I was always getting hell out of Dodge. I left in 2011. I moved literally to death Valley to a shack in a snow Creek 
uh, wildlife reserve and wrote my first novel. And then <clears throat> I left again in 2014 and went to Asia and lived in Hawaii for a little bit again. Then I went to Indonesia and then to um, Malaysia. And then I was in Sydney for a bit and then ended up <clears throat> weirdly ended up in Italy in the middle of wine country. And I started to write um, Vague Apocalyptica. Voila. Boom. And um, finished it here in Vermont. Actually, that winter, I went back to work for my boss then who had started an investment fund. And he was a perfect example of um, people that are, who are just driven entirely by money and driven entirely by their ego. And that's fine. I think we all saw it coming. You know, if you were alive in the 80s and 90s and you saw, I remember Wall Street, you know, greed is good. Uh -huh. Gecko. Uh -huh. Well, that just walked into that. I used to got my audio. Uh, just one sec. What happened? Okay. Take two. Sorry, take two. I uh, The cable guy is coming for my neighbor. We have a shared granny unit, and I had to just uh, yell at him to come in. So can you just do that one more time? I'm sorry about that. Yeah, don't worry about it. No big deal. Oh, I, was just, a... I think, you know, it was humorous, and I think uh, even novel in the 90s when Wall Street came out, people like in Gordon Gecko, you had this character of this swashbuckling trader who says greed is good. And I think capitalism, you know, I'm not a big, you know, I'm no communist to, to quote the Godfather. But on the other hand, I think you've got to think about ways the society can accommodate all people of all yes. income level. And one of the things that I talk about all the time that everybody, especially the left, hates me for is that it all started. Reagan basically set the economy up in the 80s to say, let's deregulate make it easy for American businesses, specifically service-oriented business, so finance and banking, to make a lot of money. And they knew this. And nobody disagreed. It was the big, you know, that junta of old white men that ran the country then and still run the country now to some degree, all decided to make money. And it was William J. Clinton that deregulated. And since then, we've lost 70 million jobs overseas. So wow. there's no, you can look that up. I can show you, the, I can show you the stats. It's all, that's no conspiracy. That happened. That happened. Primarily because of NAFTA, right? NAFTA and then the, right. was it the yeah. GATT or the WTO agreement yeah. as well? And we, and we got rid of Glass-Steagall. We threw out all That the was Clinton who did that? It was all Clinton. And then after him, most presidents supported that idea yeah. and supported foreign wars. And we've continued to kind of go down this path to pretty much, I think, across the board, disenfranchise the working class, make it harder for average Americans to afford houses and go to college. Pay people what we've been paying them since 1975. Wake stagnation has not gone an inch. And I talk about this in the beginning of the book. That yes, sir. If you're a single mother, a vet, or a person of color, you're pretty much going to have a really hard time affording a house, going to school, and getting up and out. And this is, you know, the left fights with this. And while they're supporting all the same measures by uh, bipartisan legislation that puts more money in people's pockets, they're also yep. giving a lot of lip service to social causes and saying, oh, you know, we've got to continue to make college affordable, state college affordable, et cetera. But really, there's no significant change in the way we think about working class and middle class people. I mean, middle class is a that's a quaint term. There's no more middle class. You're right. the poor, or, or you're the poor figuring out how to wing it, yep. or you're mega rich. You know, I think the yep. other thing that's changed, mind you, this book is written in 2016. Okay. Based on observations I made in my own career from 2011 to 2017. Okay. So 
big chunk of time there as a corporate strategist looking at the world, looking at interacting with corporations, interacting with government officials, intelligence officials, military officials, corporate bigwigs. I made a whole set of observations that make it into the book. But one of the things that nobody wants to talk about is that since 2017, for instance, um, you have this massive class war that's arisen. Uh, yes. And the class war is not directly, is not attributable. It is attributable to historic race problems in this country because it's a racist country. That's just the way it's been for a long time. We're just starting to admit it. Yeah. The other part of that, though, that's a little convenient. We know that. But the more, the bigger part of that is, is also, this is a classist country, no different than Britain. Yes. We have a class structure. And yep. if you try, you know, yeah, people make it up and out. But, you know, for instance, right now, super yachts and supercars are in back order. So there's an <laughs> enormous amount of concentrated wealth yes, that sir. people can't even conceive of in the true elite that, you know, I don't, it's not for me to tell a person how much money they should or shouldn't make. On the other hand, you know, at some point you've got to start thinking about, are you, are, or what are we doing? Prepping everybody to be an Amazon robot and pack orders and, you know, hook ourselves up to metaverse with our, so our frontal lobes are hooked up and we'll just right. be copper top batteries. I mean, is that, right. that, that's the plan. You know. Well, it seems like, uh, you know, there's still this crazy deification of Reagan, even by people who I think are normally uh, sound thinkers. Mm -hmm. so, many people, so many people think Reagan did anything at all good for America or the world. You know, I tend to, to, to really disagree. And I think we see, although the problems were bad somewhat in the 70s, there still was the ability to uh, support your family as a single wage earner. And yep. there was there was just much less of a of a divide between the haves and the have nots. Yep. And it's, it seems like the policies of Reagan have not worked from his initialization of them. And so the response of the political class has been to continue to double down on the idea with some surety that any moment now it's all going to begin trickling down and starting to work. But I think when we look at these new super billionaires, um, you know, we see it not trickling down, you know, instead of Jeff Bezos figuring out how to house all of the homeless people in Los Angeles or say San Francisco, he is spending money, get, donating money to the uh, Belgian government to disassemble a bridge so he can drive his super yacht through to some party he wants to go to. Or going to space. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I, I, I really I really am, am incredibly pro space exploration uh, and technology for um, a couple reasons. And the number one would be planetary defense. I think it's a big, uh, just a big blind spot for us um, in, in that the amount of space, uh, you know, comets, meteors, et cetera, that, that could end our life and civilization as I know it. So I think I think there is some there there is some some value to space exploration. But what Jeff Bezos isn't even do, he's not doing what Elon Musk is doing. Elon Musk is at least trying to go to Mars. He's putting satellites in space. He's offering his rocket platforms as payloads for other countries, including the U.S., Jeff Bezos is just literally doing low uh, low orbit space tourism. He's not even really technically hitting space. He and he and um, Virgin uh, yeah. Brands. same same thing. Yeah. Just a just a waste of time, money, and resources for bucks for an hour. Yeah, uh, and I don't, you know, simultaneously that class is the leading vanguard for. You know, I've always find this ironic. I went to you know COP twenty one with my old boss and. At COP20, you have people talking about lowering emissions and getting to net zero. Yep. And there was a, it was like a parking lot with the private jets. <laughs> it's fucking absurd. It's like, if you want to talk about net zero and you want to talk about uh, uh, 
cutting emissions. At some point, somebody has to mention the, uh, the voodoo word, which is consumption. And consumption is not everybody can have hamburgers and Cadillacs yes, and sir. space rides. Yes, sir. And Great. that's just life. You know, protein intake goes up, meat intake goes up in countries that develop. China and India are the two biggest markets for cattle and beef, right? Wow. Why? Because those people learn from Americans. They look at Americans and say, wow, America, hamburgers and steaks and huge doors and think that's success. And I think gotcha. anybody, that, the funny thing about it is anybody that questions it, even in a forum like LinkedIn, for instance, if you question consumption, like, do we really need all these big fucking cars? Do we really need all this? Everybody need to have cattle, meat, you have to eat meat five days a week. Yeah. Um, you get people look at you like you're from Mars still, even though there are companies like Impossible and um, lots of plant, plant-based alternative uh, meat companies. And there's lots of companies that are giving lip service to, to green um, politics and to green innovation, but very little happens. And if you look at the, I, I trade and trade and track the major indexes and if you look at the green ESG index for environmental and sustainable um, companies, it's not moving. The money is not going there. And the net outflows, for instance, in buying corporate bonds, bond, bond, sorry, is still going to major uh, Fortune 500s and major fossil fuel yep. uh, um, companies. So anybody who's walking around waving a green flag and saying the great age of Aquarius is upon us and we're all going to eat vegan and you know, uh, we're going to restore the planet's balance. Um, you're not likely in touch with reality because that hasn't and isn't happening at the corporate money at the at the level at which it has to happen, which is big money. Um, right. It's not really happening. You don't see those net outflows. Right. So, you I, know, I, somebody I, show me when how this is going to work. Well, when, I think that's a huge problem, and I think that you really outline that in your book. Um, just the the uh, the culture and the idea of a of being a good businessman and and I was just shook to the core when you really described how the default attitude of of good businessman is that everyone else is out to screw you and so yeah. it's incumbent upon you to try to put it into them first and every deal is written from this point of trying to extract the maximum amount from the other person without returning anything and I think. That is one of the, or or the really the biggest problem is this actual business culture that we find ourselves enmeshed in. I think a lot of good people are, have this naivete, and we think, yeah, I want to operate, I want to, I want to win in business, I want to make money, I want to do, you know, I want to be successful and have this naivete, depending on your background. But I think a lot of people have it of thinking, yeah, but still, people are still act fairly, you know, fairly. People are just in fairness. No, there's a whole set of society that's sociopathic that really want to destroy you and or um, deleverage you to the point of, of you have you can't compete. And yes, Silicon Valley, I lived there for four years. And honestly, and I said it before, I'll say it again. It was the worst fucking four years of my life. I've never yeah. met more scoundrels, yep. more unethical people without yep. any placement in the world, like their ideas and their intention to fake it till they make it was so profoundly entrenched in the culture that, you know, bullshit was a second language up there. If you didn't, Agreed. and you'd, you'd look at people and say, you can't, you're not really taking yourself seriously right now. Right. They'd be like, no, I'm dead serious. You know, I'm going to make $70 million in the next five and a half minutes yeah. off something that has no physical basis in reality or has yeah. no, I mean, 
they just took down Elizabeth Holmes. I think that's a great thing, but she's a she's a sacrificial lamb. I mean, and she's more a symptom of actually like the cause of the problem. Yep. And, and, and I'd like to say, you know, this is something that I really it's just smacked me in the face because I, you know, for a, a quite a bit of my life, I've been a, a cannabis navigator and kind of enmeshed in the uh, illicit markets. And while the illicit markets are are at times, you know, full of criminals and people who uh, are kind of tripping on their ego, they're all pretty bold faced about it. You know, if, if they tend to, you know, wear the jewelry and wear the Louis Vuitton bag and you can kind of see them coming. And I and a lot of my friends had really insulated ourselves in what we were doing. Um, so we were just around a lot of high vibes, heart centered people that we really were trying to help. Yeah. And then we find ourselves enmeshed, you know, entering this legal cannabis market and and interfacing with the exact people that you're talking to and just seeing their their avarice as well as their constant seeking for an exit plan and a way to get out of working and basically turn and I leverage an idea into fooling people into buying a bunch of stocks so that they can exit out and, and live this dream life at the Turks and Caicos or, or Tahiti for the rest of their life. Um, it was just astounding, along with the hubris and the arrogance that cannabis navigators knew nothing and they were gonna come in and show us how it was done and they were going to productize and widgetize cannabis as they, as they had been doing to the uh, tech industry and to other industries that they were putting their money into, you know, product development, et cetera. And, you know, number one, they were wrong and they're showing it. All these, all these millionaire tech guys are losing their asses because cannabis isn't a widget and it's really actually a very subtle and nuanced process to get high quality cannabis into the end use uh, consumer's hands. Um, Oh, shit, I kind of spaced on where I was going. Well, anyway, that was basically what I was saying is I just really have uh, been been exposed to it finally and 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 I saw it. And, you know, my my uh, my response was just to exit the legal cannabis game because I just can't be around these type of people who seem to only want to grasp for themselves. Oh, the last thing I was going to say is. Uh, we really see this, what their what their uh, operating style, their navigation style leads to. If we start in Silicon Valley, uh, San Jose and, and Mountain View and these places, they're just these uh, suburbs of hell where uh, real estate and other prices have no one-to-one -one correlation to reality. There's really no culture. There's nothing going on. Then they bounce to San Francisco, and what they do is create a huge wealth gap. San Francisco looks like Rio de Janeiro now with actual uh, plywood favelas that are not being disassembled with um, – People who are homeless, mentally ill, and drug addicted everywhere. At the same time, you have four-story parks in the air in the Salesforce Tower that you can only get to if you, you know, pass the muster from the security guard. And then there's beautiful grass and 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 manicured lawns. And of course, you're up in the sky away from all these scumbags down here. And you know, these guys were supposed to pay this big tax into San Francisco to provide services to help these people. They all skated. None of them paid it. And when it came time to pay the tax, they all bounced to Venice. And then what you see in Venice is Venice wasn't ever perfect. It was on the edge, but it really had a, 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 a melting pot and a mixing ground of people from so many socioeconomic backgrounds until the tech, the it was yeah, until the tech companies came in and then all of a sudden the same thing happened that happened in San Francisco with land values, you know, quadrupled and, and went up 10 times. And all of a sudden, instead of artists and craftspeople and performers on the boardwalk, you just have another favela shantytown of fairly dangerous folks who were disaffected from society. And then, once they basically ruined Venice, then it was off to Austin. And now you see the same thing in Austin where they're building huge Google skyscrapers and the homeless population is is exploding out of control and the land values are exploding out of control. And I hear next they're going to Florida and uh, West Palm Beach is the next. 
Target. I heard West Palm Beach and Boca Raton. I don't know if those two are close to each other, but we yeah. literally see these these locusts moving from place to place and just devouring all of the culture and all of the middle ground and and leaving nothing of value in their wake and then just moving on to the next uh, fertile field to destroy. What do you think we should do? I mean, bro, I think that psychedelics, um, discipline and and psychological therapy are the only hopes. You know, I really think that we as a uh, culture need to um, reinstate psychedelic rituals and really with less dogma and judgment, but with a lot of psychedelic peer mentoring and positive messaging. But I also, I do a lot of psychedelics and I find myself oftentimes maybe overly optimistic about uh, how the whole thing's gonna work out. Um, Bad thing. But yeah, I'd love to, you. I, I know that you've prepared some passages and I'd love uh, to have you, you know, share one and then uh, maybe we can go from there and and i'd like to hear what your idea is or are for solutions or if you think there are any after maybe you offer some reading i mean i'm happy to i i think uh i you know occasionally i'll flip through the book and go okay. and kind of um i think that do you have uh do you know where that uh, passage is where you're really discussing um you know that what we were just discussing on business because it's coming yeah yeah it, is. it says um it's in the forward of the book. And so the book is named Vague Apocalyptica, which is that for prior, I think, as early as 2000, um, you know, I studied philosophy, which was right next to useless in terms of applicability for the workforce, um, but very useful if you're interested in ideas. So, you know, even as early as the early two, as early as the late 90s when I got out of school and moved to the West Coast, I felt like there's something changing in this country that's not good. And, you know, critical theory, which has been largely bastardized by the right wing, they had a lot of things right. They did take yes. inheritance of um, Marxist deconstruction and apply it to society. And a lot of those ideas about how society was disintegrating, how society was changing, were right. I tend to, I have, I, I don't find myself, I'm not right or left. I find myself as a consistent moderate and a centrist in the sense that, um, the extreme and ultra ultra right wing has always and will always have uh, its target being to re to return the country to the fifties and yes. to legislate morality and to keep putting money in the pockets of the ultra rich. I mean, that's just kind of the way that side of the side of the political spectrum works, along with nationalism and xenophobia and um, a lot of other stuff. And you know, there's some stuff the right gets um, correctly and. You know, I think having liberty as an essential as an essential goal of society has been around since Locke. It's the basis of our society, and there's nothing wrong with it. The left, on the other hand, as you know, a historic flirtation with um, socialism, and yet everything that was left does always gets called socialism, and that's not accurate. No. There are plenty of countries around the world that are operating with socialist um, style um, security for people in the lower rungs of society and they all those countries operate perfectly well and they have their opponents. I mean, the classic Nordic model, uh, you know, Sweden, Switzerland, Norway, Finland, Greenland, Iceland, those countries work, they have highly literate societies, but they're highly homogeneous and they're small. So you can't say that that's going to work in the US. The problem that we've run into is that over a period of the last 20 years, we saw that um, Society was bifurcating into camps, 
right versus left. And it was only a matter of time before that became political violence. And, you know, I wrote, and this is 2015, I said, you know, how about the rest of the phrase? And I'm quoting from um, uh, the ancient meaning of the word uh, apocalypse, which is an uncovering. I said, what if the rest of the phrase, an era, an era dominated by falsehood and misconception, this doesn't require much elaboration. The apocalypse, in quotes, we face is not just about corporate hegemony, which we're talking about, and oligarchy, which we're talking about, but it's about how we uphold fundamental needs creation. And the present gaping chasm between rich and poor is going to end with people in the streets of Athens, Lisbon, London, Madrid, Berkeley, and Washington. So those cities turned out to be Kenosha, Ferguson. Right, uh, right. Yeah. So I was off geographically, but it, I had to point. And yes, people, sir. you know, about 2015, people said, oh, you're crazy. I said, no, there's going to be civil war. And now if you're following the news, Ray Dalio, who's the um, head of BlackRock, he said the same thing. And a lot of um, investment bankers have said that we have concentrated wealth so completely and ignored the needs of the working class that we've created this, we've created this class strife it goes beyond race, in my opinion. It's really about class. Yep. As long as you have groups of people, particularly young men, who have access to orthodoxy in the form of religion and have access to hatred in the form of uh, xenophobia, those people, it happened in Germany, it's happened in Austria, it's happened in Hungary, it's happened in um, Russia. This ultra-nationalist ultra vibe is not new. It's historically um, associated with fascism. And I think, yeah, I, I, I don't... You know, I'm not crazy about the notion of we're heading into a full-blown fascist crisis, but I do think we're going to see. I think 2024, I I, I would predict a political, I would predict a coup. Oh, That's geez. awesome. Your show. No, I know. I, I it's it feels like something horrible is is awaiting us in 2024 as well. Especially, you know, for me, unfortunately, I you know I voted for Biden because although I think he's a war criminal and a, a corrupt sleaze bag, he was a degree definitely better than Trump. You know, if I if we're gonna have a war criminal sleaze bag in the office, I'd prefer one that said that people of color and and people of alternate sexual orientations are okay and don't need to be outgrouped or destroyed. Yeah. So I think those are I did I did I vote for Biden, but I I'm sorry. I think those are convenient positions for him. I think that the whole ruling. Well, I think it's a it's a it's a sheen or a, a a varnish over the same the same policies and principles of the Republicans and Donald Trump, et cetera, which is enrichment of the wealthy and and further strat you know uh, preservation of the class stratification, for sure. And I think that's that's where I was heading is just with Biden's poor leadership inability to get anything done to help working people. I think he's really priming the nation for a Republican takeover of the house and Senate in 2022. And yeah. to your point, if the house and Senate are taken over by Republicans, they've already revealed their venal and, and corrupt and amoral nature. And I think they would do anything possible to get a Supreme right-wing nationalist Christian leader in place. And so i share your fear about that. On the one hand, do I really fear it from rural Vermont, right? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, because I think you, you, you've got these camps of people that are, you know, I've got neighbors flying the Gadsden flag right down the street. Right. You know, and I'm in a conservative county right now. I mean, I don't have a problem with people because I know how to handle a gun. I go hunting. I've done all sorts of things in the course of the last 50 years that qualified me as enough of a person that can handle themselves in the woods but on the other hand you know when when do armed people feel like they need to hit the streets and i think 
you know, and moreover, when do armed people feel like they need to go knock on their neighbor's doors? That's when it gets a little freaky. Mm. Yes. Number one crime on the rise right now is carjacking. Yep. It's it's horrific in San Francisco. There's videos every day of people just being whipped out of their cars on Market Street. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you think twice about carjacking somebody if you know they have a 38 and they're dashed in there. <laughs> Very true. Very true. Um, I'd like to ask you a question. Are yeah. you familiar with Bacon's Rebellion? Uh, am I? So Bacon's Rebellion happened in the, I was, it's very late 1600s or very early 1700s. I'm thinking 1722, but I smoke a lot of dope, so I forget dates. Um, the chattel slaves, the the, the black slaves, allied with the indigenous uh, East Coast Americans, as well as the indentured servants who were really slaves and everything but name that were the Italians, um, the Irish, and the other not yet uh, uh, approved, you know, or, or clean, Related cultural clean races, right? And so all of these groups got together and they were almost able to stage a successful rebellion and overthrow the landed white aristocracy of the U.S. Um, wow. the, when the rebellion was crushed, that was when the concept of whiteness was introduced to America. And poor, poor European people were given whiteness so that that's right. Economic stratification could be preserved, but they would have something to hold over and divide them from the black slaves and the indigenous Americans. And and the reason I'm mentioning this is because I'm just wondering if to you this seems the same. To me, it seems like the ultra nationalism and the Trump presidency and the, you know, the Trump uh, Gadsden flag, don't tread on me, Tea Party, this whole thing, it seems like the kind of logical end game of of this offering of whiteness as really a meaningless separator so that uh, the classes that are being taken advantage of won't unite. And, and so I think, I think that's always been the goal. I think um, if I haven't, I suggest this to people. Black wind, white snow. Oh, wow. Okay. Why do I suggest this book? First of all, um, Charles Clover is the former bureau chief for the Moscow desk of the financial times, incredible writer. Um, so why is Russia's new nationalism relevant to what we're talking about? Because there is a shit ton of evidence to suggest that the Russians have been infiltrating our social media. We know that factually. Yes. yes. And this has always been the plan is to undermine our social system or to help it crumble. And I'm no conspiracy theory as you conspiracy theorist, as you know, and I have the great pleasure of discrediting certain conspiracy theories that people find amusing because I belong to some of these clubs and yes. hung out with some of these people. We can definitely dive in on that one because it's okay. amusing. But, um, you know, the Russian new nationalist is a guy named Alexander Dugan. They called him the most dangerous philosopher in the world. He's not much older than I am. I think he was born in 1964. He um, talks about this proto-Aryan vision that comes from what they call uh, Thule or the real North, right? So the Russians have been positing this myth mysticism that the Nazis inherited at one point, which is that the true Aryan, the true Northerner, the true white guy is from Siberia, right? Okay. Right. And this kind of new nationalist mixture of uh, folklore and nationalism and ultra right wing Christianity is tied in yep. um, is all part of a really interesting I mean, just as a writer alone, it's fascinating. I mean, so again, Chris Clover, um, <clears throat> there's no better, um, there's no better explanation for what's happening than than to give it a, a 
to give it a spin that's greater than just the the U.S. I think it's something that's happening globally. Okay. I think we're shifting. I think we're shifting towards autocracy because people have, lar have largely um, taken the yoke of lag of education, lack of resources, and decided, okay, well, it's not that bad as long as I have the NFL and as long as I have you know some some um, additives and some Doritos and some Pepsi Cola to pour it on my gullet, then I'll. I'll just continue to be a zombie until, you know, somebody tells me to not be, or somebody tells me to vote for that. And, you know, that's how we've created this complete, this underclass. And that underclass includes all sorts of reactionary people, right and left. Yeah. Um, I don't differentiate. If you're a reactionary, it doesn't matter what your politics are, you're reactionary. So. Yeah, I used to differentiate a bit until the post-Trump era when I, th I thought that Again, naive. I, I am a naive optimist, and I'm just finally at almost fifty, really beginning to realize about this about myself. I, I kind of uh, adopted the Mister Rogers worldview and philosophy at a very young age, and it's it's really been uh, it's just so deep inside my center that I I tend to default to it. But I've really been seeing that. So I thought really things were going to go back to, I don't want to say normal, but maybe a, uh, just a down regulated uh, version of the the trauma that we're in. But what I saw was. These folks that were my allies on the left, the moment Trump was out, they began to cannibalize the center and even the 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 left and, and folks who had any type of divergent views. And the thing that really blew my mind in the uh, um, the beginning of the Biden pre presidency in this uh, unfolding of Corona was to watch how many people I thought were really individualists and respecters of human liberty due to their navigation in the psychedelic black market and or the cannabis black market and or just by dint of being, you know, kind of out there um, artists, how many people just immediately fell in line with CNN and Rachel Maddow and MSNBC and, and Jen Psaki and Joe Biden and became these, they're not, and I wouldn't even call them left wing as much as, as center left corporate Republican reactionaries, uh, uh, center left um, Democrat reactionaries. And really they began the same tactics of just intolerance, hostility and shouting everyone down that doesn't immediately profess their their worldview. Yeah, so I, I, got, I, 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 just add, I just wanted to add that to what you were saying and saying oh. that I'm seeing that as well, it's troubling. That sort of ideological narrow-mindedness, that sort of myopia is a sign of a culture in decline because a culture in decline is, easily, is more easily taken down either by a foreign adversary or by internal adversaries when the people are bifurcated into camps. You know, I had the great pleasure last week of getting banned by Salman Rushdie. <laughs> what? Yeah. What? You're right. So okay, Substack. tell this one. My blog is on Substack now okay. because I got off the major social media channels. I shut down Facebook in 2014. Um, LinkedIn, where I was, you know, at one point a management guru, if you can imagine, with 90,000 people following my work, I got banned off there for questioning both right and left. I took wow. pot shots as both right and left and they got me off. They kicked me off. Um, and luckily now I've restored my account under certain conditions by the regenerators. Of the, oh, Jesus. The platform. Like if you don't behave. But anyway, on Substack, where my newsletter is, Simon Rushdie wrote a piece about James Joyce, Ulysses, the publication of Ulysses. And all yep. I did was say, you know, Simon, some people think Ulysses is pretentious and that it's just an elitist book read by rich people who are bored because James Joyce himself said, 
I'm just taking the piss so that professors and all the literary critics will wonder what the fuck I was talking about for the next hundred years, wow. which is exactly what happened. Yep. And so this is somewhere in, you know, Tushita heaven laughing and Shaman Rushdie's banning me because I had the, I had the temerity to suggest certain so you, books. So you're saying are, he, blo he blocked you from commenting on his Substack? He immediately banned me and then said wow. that I was, you know, stumble away from my, these vaunted literary pages. Crazy. I just I, mean, I would think I would think he, I would the think real, he the humor here is the real humor to your point is this yeah. exactly. This is a left wing intellectual who had a fatwa on him for freedom that's of what, speech. That's what I was just gonna say to you. It's like the irony is is just stunning. It's like a brick to the side of the head. And then if he bans you, you can't even communicate with him and be like, hey bro, are you so now are you putting your your fatwa on me? So I just got you know, I just got banned by the Vanguard for intellectual freedom. <laughs> oh, so, so the, to your point, like the Rachel Maddow NSBC, you know, Harvard, Yale, Ivy League Club, yep. you know, this group of intellectuals, you know, the Atlantic, the New Yorker, uh, the New Republic. I mean, this I've never penetrated the pages of any of these magazines because it's pretty clear to anybody that I'm not following a leftist or rightist point of view. Right. And never will. Right. But if you want to, if you want to go and suck up in those circles, like a lot of young children of elitists do, it's very despotic. All of those kids, mom and dads were the editors and the graphic designers and the, you know, ad executives in the 90s who their kids now write for those magazines. It's very incestuous and you can't break through those those barriers and get a real voice. You know, I, I think of one magazine that um, I think The Atlantic is better than The New Yorker. Just for sake of saying, and okay. you know, if ever wants to publish me, you'll know that I like the Atlantic. The New Yorker is pretentious, I think. I think, and oh, then yeah. on the other side, the I find writing, it, I find I find what I what I think are shorter, more succinct articles in the Atlantic that actually point to something. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times when I'm reading the New Yorker, I can get the gist in the first few and, la and last few paragraphs, and the rest does seem like you're saying kind of like, a, "Hey, look, watch, I'm doing, I'm doing a wheelie." You know, it's kind of like a pretentious show off. And they could really just pare that just, down. I just had a vision of of Abbott Kinney with your with your remember your bike. The, oh, I do. Eight, yep. The high bike. bikes. Yeah. The fact that I got on that bike meant I was probably in shape then. <laughs> and adventurous. Yeah, I used to have bikes that the seat was about almost six foot in the air and fucking way I'll break. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I think going back to your point, I think there are camps set up, pretty distinct camps. The left, I find particularly ingratiating and weird and pandering. You know, every time a black person says that their experience is different in diverse doesn't mean you have to tell them how sorry you are that you're white. You know, okay. like that sort of shaming is pointless because, yeah. you know, I look at it this way. My people came here in the 1890s and were treated like shit and spit on and called every name in the book yeah. from Italy. So, I, you know, not my people, my people didn't get off the Mayflower with slaves behind them. Right. So right. I don't go for that. I don't go well, for I this mean, white. So, so for me, this I goes back. Really qualify as white in my world because I don't get treated like a, you know, I don't, I don't walk into places and they're like, oh, yes, come here and have tea. And we'll be waiting and we'll give you a suit of clothes and perhaps we have new shoes for you. I mean, I don't, I don't know where this privilege is that. Well, like, again, I, I mean, so there, there, I, I would have to say just as, as somebody again, who's navigated the psychedelic black market for most of my life, my white appearance uh, does make it easier when I get pulled over by a cop, I can put on my like, ah, howdy officer face and, and totally get right, you know, just get into a rapport and get let go. And I've been in those same situations with 
with black friends and we were all in handcuffs sitting at the side of 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 the curb and our and our car getting turned out and for me it was really it was an eye-opening experience in how much of a reality there is but going back to what i was saying about bacon's rebellion the big problem i'm having is that there is institutionalized racism there's a history of COINTELPRO and the fbi and the cia specifically targeting native american communities black communities and and mexican american communities but at the same time when these communities rightfully in their rightful indignation at their treatment at the hands of the elites and the folks who are really running things are attempting to wake people up sometimes there's a there's a pushback because people are feeling like you're feeling and i think the answer is really in the middle in that uh there is institutionalized racism but at the same point we really are we do share a solidarity with these people and there needs to be some sort of new languaging that allows uh an alliance and sovereignty of class and and not so much i don't want to say race as the i think we need to respect institutionalized racism the difficulties of people of color and find a way to forge an alliance in that i think it's it's so difficult and and the, the most difficult thing is the folks that have the yoke on all of us and have the boot on our neck have given us an insincere system with a set of abstract realities that don't really even fit and it just causes us to cannibalize each other you know because black people are like yo dude like we get shot by cops and and when we interface with cops and at the store and with any government and and we go to apply for jobs we are treated differently when our houses are appraised we are treated differently and then you you know you come against poor white folks like bro i can barely fucking afford to eat and so these two factions begin to infight and cannibalize themselves about who's right when really they're both right and the answer lies outside of the system that's created to to capture us you know another example of this is the the twin towers in los angeles the sheriffs and the da's purposefully stoke racial violence between primarily the Mexicans and the blacks in the Twin Towers because they are so perennially understaffed both in the jail and then outside in LA that were they not to stoke this racial violence there is a constant fear that these the black and Mexican both gangs and social organizations and and just the polity in general would then unite and and the forces that run Los Angeles and run the jail would have a real problem. I think I think to not to clarify, but to to um, to, well, first of all, I, I'm living in a state right now that's 94% white. It's like the whitest state in the union, and it wow, and there is a difference culturally. I think Vermont, in many ways, is a different country. Now, I can get into trouble real fast if I talk any shit about Vermont. That's how Vermont works. Okay, <laughs> I'll have a neighbor find me at the co-op and be like, I heard that, you know podcast thing you did <laughs> where you said that we're as much hicks as they are in Arkansas yeah. and they are yeah. so there's there's that the the reality of historical racism I would be the last person on the planet to deny because it is very specific and frankly um, presents enormous challenges that even within the black community specific specifically within the black intellectual community have addressed as being like, we as a community, as a people have not yet been able to galvanize our forces together to create economic power, cultural power, et cetera. And I think that, you know, that's what Malcolm X was talking about uh, 40 years ago. So yes, longer than that, 40, 50 yes, years ago. So I still come from the perspective that, um, that, that the racial groups in society, 
they are historically disenfranchised. It is essentially much more difficult to be a black person than it is to be a white skinned person in this culture. That's all, um, I, I don't question any of that. Where I begin to get, where I begin to question and begin to invite dialogue is that, to, and you were just talking about, the working class um, is comprised of white and black and olive and yellow and red people. And those yes. people I think need to comprise those that needs to be that's where your collaboration is and historically Agreed. they have relied on the democrats and the democrats have failed these people so these knee bending you know pandering gestures to me are sickening because you know i, I you know I, I have a question for for democratically aligned groups at the state and municipal level why are there not county to county offices run by the Democratic National Party where you go and you find out about child care and birth control, education and right. student loans, right. financial planning for young people in every single county. So instead of worrying about votes, worry about putting resources at the disposal of people that need it. Why is there not an organic food? Why is there organic food not in every single school? Why is there not a gardening program, an organic yeah farming program in every single school because the forces that have arrayed themselves historically are not interested in humanistic and human values they're interested in you know what Mussolini called corporatist values yeah. the fact that most people forget that the word corporatist is associated directly with fascism, fascism which is yeah corporatist meaning hegemonic forces that band together in corporations that have that influence and exert enormous power you know, and I I'm, by the way, I'm not saying to be fair, I'm not saying all corporations are bad. I'm saying that, you know, it's, it's kind of the nature, unless you're a B Corp, the nature of the corporation is is self-enrichment is amoral self-enrichment. And I think that or, that is or you're Patagonia, which is, you know, a billion dollar privately owned com company that donates a massive amount to climate change, but has the least diverse workforce you've ever seen in your life. Gotcha. So why? Right. Right. I mean. If you look at Patagonia and you go through all their profiles on LinkedIn, it's it's all people that are you know your buddies from surfing and climbing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they're all white people. So it's like, don't tell well, me also, that you're this. Also, a lot of the, you know white people are the for, for the most part of the folks that have had the access to camping, the the you know the, the, the economic ability to even go camping, do camping, rock climbing. That shit's expensive. Yep. And also, yeah. like as as a black person. Um, not myself, I'm saying someone as a black person and knowing the history of like the green book, you know, literally a book to tell you what roads to take and not and what towns you can stop in and not and what towns you better just be gone before sundown so you don't find yourself dead. I mean, that doesn't make camping sound very fun. It makes camping sound intimidating and frightening, you know, whereas yeah. like if you're white and you're going to Yosemite, sure, you got to watch out for bears and you got to hang your food up. But as, as a as a person of color going out into rural America to go camping, you have to watch out for every person at the gas station, anyone you're camped next to, anyone who may come a, come across you. And I, I don't mean to dial it, you know, dial it down or or, or dial in, you know, over dial into it either. You know, um, I think but I just, these I just are think the that scary. There's, there, there's some there's some some reasons why. I think these are scary points of order that people that people often resist because they're scary. For instance, yeah. um, CZ Namika, who's an MIT undergrad, I think, when, or graduate student, which she, I quoted her in my book, CZ Namika talks about the fact that, um, yeah, there's a significant difference. If your mom is 
working two jobs and your dad is absent and or crack addicted and your siblings are all gangbangers, you might have trouble doing homework. Yeah, very much. You so. know, like, and I love it when the right is like, anybody can get their bootstraps and go yeah. to heart. That fucking Jordan I mean, Peterson I thing. I mean, and- I mean, I got I was raised in a really rough family and I, I didn't do great in school, you know, so I can't imagine being raised in not a such a great supportive family in an urban center in a building with 4000 people and shit tons of noise and yeah. drug addicts in the in the in the in the hallways. I think you're going to are you going to do your math homework? I don't think so. No, and I, I think I it's totally unfair these expectations of people where um, you face an unbelievably you face an enormous a set of challenges that most people don't. And the same thing goes to what we were just talking about that I don't think a lot of people consider that. Yeah, if I'm a black or Hispanic or different looking and I go to, you know, ski and I go to some place, maybe I'm not going to feel real welcome and comfortable and, you know, I'm going to feel a little bit out of place. And I think the basis of both of those examples of understanding that it's hard for the kid to do homework in the tenement building and hard for this gal wants to go hiking and wherever Vermont because they're black. I think the empathy is the thing that ties those two together, because if you can't get out of your own ass for a minute and think about, gee, I wonder what that person's experience of life is. Is it different than mine? And I think if we can, if you want to reach, let's start with the right wing. You want to reach right wing racist, straight up brainwashed racist. Good luck. First of all, second of all, um, (laughs) you know, you have to get them to empathize and say, yeah, I mean, I can understand that might be difficult. I would feel the same. And if you want to start deprogramming um, radical leftists who think we should just blow up the entire fucking system and restart from rainbow, I think, you know, you have to get into the experience. You have to imagine the experience of people who are classically and historically disenfranchised from even being recognized. And I think that is yeah. the point on the left is we want to recognize all these colors in the rainbow. Well, that's great. And the right is... We want to recognize that we're not all rich. Uh, we're not all Bill Gates. We all don't have um, enormous amounts of money and we're just as struggling as much as you're in. I don't see why these two groups don't get together and figure out a way to have a political presence in the system. Agreed. Um, it's certainly not, you know, there were lots of black, brown and yellow and orange faces in Trump rallies. Yep. There are plenty. So. Yeah. And there are lots of, you know, there are lots of, um, you know, uh, lots of different kinds of faces on the on the left comprising what we consider to be modern pluralism and diversity. So, you know, the country's got to figure out at some point um, what does a shared pluralist society look like. Yes, sir. And going back to the Nordic model that I mentioned, those are homogeneous society. They're mostly white. Yeah. And or they're, at least having, they're, they're actually <laughs> having a lot of problems with... Uh, far-right agitators who are mad about uh, Middle Easterners, Muslims, and other folks coming in and, you know, reaping the benefits of, of their society. I have friends. So they're, in they're kind of, they're, uh-huh. that are dating, and I have friends in Munich who talk about that they can't go out to the, to the promenade anymore for a, a dinner out al fresco because there's too many Turks and too many Arabs in the street. Same thing with Paris. Uh, Paris is a huge Arab community. Yeah. Um, you know, I, the world is a big place getting smaller. And yes, sir. if you don't have the wherewithal to assimilate into whatever the corporatist and whatever the uh, prevailing and predominant 
society is, I mean, good luck. And what is that in America? It's, what is it? It's you go get a startup job and right. drive an electric car and um, own an apartment on stilts in San Francisco. Good luck, bro. Teslas are 200 grand. So I, I, I saw a great tweet that really highlights kind of what we're talking about. Uh, and it was really simple. It was like uh, poor and working class people say, we need help. The Republican answer is no. And the Democrat answer is no. Hashtag Black Lives Matter trans flag. Exactly and, that's, and that's really what's been going on is that there's been this on the left. It's turned into this veneer of of appreciation of culture and diversity, but it's really just a smokescreen to allow the same extraction and upward movement of, of wealth and resources and, and the same class stratification. Like Pelosi's a millionaire and she's not, uh, she's not voting against stock trading. Gavin Newsom's a millionaire. This morning, after the biggest run in history and I've traded this market for 10 years. So, you know, I'm not a millionaire, so I obviously didn't do too well, but you know, I traded it for fun, I guess. <laughs> okay. So, but this morning they said that they they were going to try to outlaw lawmakers from trading on stock, and I'm like, after, of course you're doing this now, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right before the epic crash that's going to happen. That's going to take the bottom out of crypto, the bottom out of um, all the S and P, and it's going to and everything's overvalued by 25. percent Just at least, yes, sir. At least, yeah. Right. So you know, Peloton's about to go BK because people are having heart attacks on television while they ride the bike or some shit like this. And Peloton is what they're like, you know, overvalued by forty million dollars. You know, something. Yeah, well, it's all these tech companies are worth billions of dollars. They're publicly traded. Their stock seems to only go up. And then when you dive into them, they have no revenue model. They're not actually Profitable. making money. It's a smokescreen just kept alive by the by the first line of investors pouring cash in and then then it gets perpetuated by the public you know the public stock model and people buying it in the hype but it's like it's it's a it's purely like a hype based stock market i think that going back to the beginning of the conversation that sometimes when i lived in silicon valley i would tell people oh you thought capitalism in the 90s was bad you want silicon Get valley ready. silicon valley capitalism and mind you i was a growth consultant so i was the guy who came in strategically and said okay you know, this is what it'll look like for you to grow your company, both from a marketing perspective, PR perspective, profitability perspective. And nine times out of 10, they'd be like, wait, that's too much too realistic. We can't do that. We need some hype. And the funny thing about it is that in Silicon Valley, the, this culture of driving up uh, stock price, uh, you know, that, that stock account frequently when they're penny stocks is just somebody's checking account. <laughs> You know, you could the CEO, you have that check account. You just go in and hey, there's my money. I got more money in there than I did yesterday. Gotcha. And you just run it up. And then, okay, that's the old days of penny stocks. Now it's VC and SPACs. And basically they're handing you these people massive check, massive amounts of money yep. and saying, okay, go build a company. And frequently these are guys who, or gals too, that have, you know, quit college, have never run a business in their life, but may or may not have a genius idea about tech. And most of it's like DevOps, cybersecurity, um, infrastructural stuff, AI, you know, stuff that to the average person is fairly obtuse. And it's a culture not only run by these kind of flagrant uh, venture capitalists who throw money in anything, but also by it's supported by a culture of engineers who are mostly foreign who won't question anything as long as they're getting big paychecks. Right. You know? And and the pay is ridiculous. I have a an acquaintance that's a friend of a friend and she's a low level Facebook manager. She manages a team of 10 people 
and she does some random shit with uh, targeted ads and blah blah blah, and she makes four hundred thousand dollars a year. Yeah, you make up cinema. If she was in any other uh, industry, in her job, she'd probably make eighty thousand entry to maybe one fifty, where she a ten year veteran, right? Big money. Yeah. Big money. Yes. Sir. And if you don't buy it, I think there's a secret code word. I don't have it, by the way. Because every time I do an interview now, even to this day with a with a tech company, they're always like, "Okay, thanks for your time." I'm like, "But I just, I wanted to just talk about my resume for a minute." Yeah, they, I don't have the code word with that group yet. I think it's got something to do with um, just nodding your head a lot and being like, "Yes, profit." Well, Good. the same th the same thing happens to me, and has been happening in the legal weed game. And I think it's just. It's this model of if you're the the you know the lucky guy whose dad or or good friend has a twenty million dollars and you're a genius you're the next Steve Jobs, and you get all of the money and all of the vacation time and you get to go eat you know at the big seafood restaurant at the Venetian and with the ten thousand dollar bill, and then if you're anywhere even one ladder rung below that, you're basically nobody and and your only thing to do is to be incredibly thankful you have a job at all and to be a drone, and and I see this in being you know. Um, after my own little thing fell apart because it was these tech bros who had this money and kind of, it's a long story anyway, they ran back to tech when Sessions wrote that letter and then it left me interfacing with a lot of these new companies. And they would come to me because of you know my, my navigation and, and just, I do a lot of psychedelics and so I've had to really keep my integrity straight just so I can get really high as balls and not freak out. But because of that, I have a pretty good reputation in the, in the cannabis industry and so, I'm also a cultivator of, 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 of a bit of renown. And uh, so these companies will come to me and they're like, hey, you've been in the weed game 30 years and like everybody seems to love you. People return your calls like we want your magic. And I'm like, okay, cool. So then we have a, a follow up and we start dialing into it. And then like, okay, so we want you. And, and so we can't pay you enough to live in California, but we also need you to sign this thing saying you're going to do no freelance work or work for anyone else. Um, we're going to capture all of your IP from the moment you start working for us forward. You get one week of paid vacation a year. And you got to show up starting eight o'clock, you know, for nine to 10 hours a day. And you got to make all the Zoom calls and we're going to call you on the weekends. And then what I've been doing is just going through these contracts and just redlining everything they write and basically rewriting the contract saying that, you know, I I, I swear to uh, provide, you know, whatever metrics that they wish for the job. And 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 in uh, and, and then, you know, for their side, I get unlimited vacation provided I'm hitting their metrics. I get the right to my IP because I came to the job with that IP. And I basically get to navigate how I want, provided that I give them everything they need. And then they always get back to me with like, you know, uh, we never had anybody rewrite the contract okay. before. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that's okay. That's kind of stuff I do. Like, yeah, well, we don't think that this is going to really be a great fit. And and for me, it's just like, oh, yeah, no, it's totally not going to be a great fit. And thanks for just getting right into this. And, and uh, yeah, yeah, actually I, I, I tried it for a moment and I tried these jobs where endless promises of advancement and more money, but right now you just got to suck it and not get enough. And, and then I, I go into these companies because of just the time I've spent in the weed game and I'm a chess player. I'm, I'm pretty good with strategy. I'll, I'll line out the whole thing within the first couple of months of here's where you are. Here's why you're failing a little bit. Here's why you're about to fail dramatically. And here's how to save and solve that. And the, 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 the comeback is always the same, which is this kind of read between the lines of like, Hey dude, I was the guy who got lucky to be born white enough that I have access to this money. So I'm a genius and you're yeah. just some mid-level weed guy who doesn't know anything. So we're just going to keep doing what we're doing because 
you know, I just I haven't gotten tired of patting myself on the back. And every time I have one of these conference calls, everybody lines up to tell me that I'm the next Steve Jobs. And so, so I end up leaving these companies and watching them crash one to three months later for the exact reasons, you know, that I outlined. And so that's why I started just getting really radical with my contract and my languaging. And I'd rather just blow the whole thing up in the first five minutes than waste my time. Because this is the same group aligned with the left traditionally that wants people to fall in line and be little robots. Yes, 100%. I've had a lot of interviews back with tech where they said, wow, you have quite the resume. Even in the game since before all this stuff was created, you were a strategist and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, great, you know, I'm a hireable and I'm not looking for a ton of money. I live in a rural place and I know what my needs are and I don't want to work 40 hours a week. And I want to just uh, be able to support that on the lower end of these salary scales by far. Yes. And they always say, and then they, they find out in the course of their conversation, gee, this guy's not going to really fall in line. And he knows more about how to run. He knows more about how to run a marketing department. He can probably be the, be the chief marketing officer. He's just asking for a copy job. Like I'll just write copy. I don't care. Yeah. And they immediately find out, well, this guy could probably run this unit of business for us. And he's going to tell us. And I'm like, well, while we're on the topic, I mean, I could give you a few, uh, I could give you a few ideas. And inevitably the conversation ends and they're like, you're, and you just said it. And I find this just hysterical. Every time it comes down to this, you're just saying, we don't think this is the right fit. So the last time this happened to me, the last time he said, said, laid that amount of bullshit on me, just not the right fit. I said, what exactly is the right fit? Fucking silence crickets. They're like, um, I'm like, because you know what it is. So what is the right fit? So I think it's somebody who's ass kissing and just kind yes. of falls into this ice tray where you can freeze them in and you pop them out when you need them, put them in the water and put them back in the ice tray. Yeah. Like as long as they melt in the direction you want them to melt, you're good. But the minute anybody can break out of the little ice tray, I don't know what the ice tray analogy is. Maybe it's <laughs> no, but I like it. I get what you're saying. Yeah. Right. You know, so they they pop you in there. Like, you can freeze in here, and you got to do your job. But your job is only to make the drink colder. Right. Right. It's like let's, you know. Here's this job. You're you are basically my worker bee. We're gonna have a couple calls a week about how brilliant I am, and you're gonna definitely be just stoked and constantly kissing my ass and thanking me that you have a job at all. And it's not out of the norm in other industries. It's just been so jarring in cannabis because for so long, for so long, cannabis has just been about much higher levels of personal freedom and much higher levels of equity along the pay scale for everyone involved. And that's why most of the folks that I know, I have to say there's two subsets. There's the one subset of the of the people of color that I know and have worked with in, in Los Angeles and, and Oakland and San Francisco and Sacramento that are really doing this because they just don't have a lot of options. And cannabis especially is somewhere that's far less dangerous, dangerous and violent than cocaine far less jail yeah. and prison time as well. And so it allows them a facility to um, do something other than work at Home Depot or McDonald's for minimum wage and to actually support their family. And then on the other side, there's folks like, you know, myself who have, have um, I come from a, you know, lower middle class background, but at the same time, just because of, you know, my intellect and my luck and my white appearance, I'm able to, to navigate. And so folks like myself, seeing kind of the same outcome and outlook and don't want to be a corporate drone for the rest of our life, we escaped into cannabis and especially into cultivation in Northern California because it just allowed us a freedom to treat and pay our our, our partners and workers much more equitably. I remember in the beginning, the beginning of beginning of legalization, it was a very promising. Uh, it felt very promising, and there were a lot yes. of people. So we know some of the same people, and I, you know, I'm thinking about like uh, uh, people that had been formerly uh, advertising and marketing executives that went into the field. 
yep. to try to help grow it. But then they themselves turned out to be kind of pariahs yep. and had and now have, you know, 10 clients charging them each 10 grand a minute. So much to of tell that. them how to do Facebook ads. You know, I just, ah, ah, it makes me want to go crazy. But, um, you know, that's where we are today. A uh, lot of territory we covered as usual. I'm remark. I'm thinking how different this is than our last podcast. <laughs> it's it's really good, and I just I really I mean this right here is the reason for the podcast is that uh, I just find myself on the daily enmeshed with really amazing thinkers with really unique perspectives and a lot of of vision into what is happening, and and I just want to help to provide some sort of light or some sort of roadmap for all of us so that, you know, folks that are both younger and, and smarter than you or I can can maybe build on that and, and really help us escape this. You know, what do you think is, uh, is there a solution? Do you, I know in the book you talk about some solutions, but I just wanted to highlight that. Like, is there, you've done an amazing job, especially in the book um, of, of dialing down on where we find ourselves now. And I would ask where, what would you propose or suggest is a way forward Again, to a better reality or is there one yeah i mean i, I it's it's it um it's the it's the question on everybody's mind right and i don't i wouldn't i try to avoid a couple of things i try to avoid spiritual and mumbo jumbo and psychobabble that you know humans are uh, inherently spiritual and collaborate want to get together i don't think anything evidence is that right now we're in a pretty dark period of history yeah. Um, and I, I think we're in a particularly dark, darkening period of history in the United States where the system is falling apart. Yes. We may not, nobody want, may, people may not want to hear that, but it's true. And yep. some of us were lucky enough, I guess, to be kind of interested in the society at large. I mean, I saw this coming in college and talked about it all the time. And my own family thought I was a radical and yeah. I was hardly a radical. I was just somebody paying attention. And, you know, if you look at the disintegration of the, of the polity, Integration of political discourse is usually a bad sign. If you look at job intelligence and technology, that's going to put a lot of people, otherwise working people, in a position of even greater desperation. Yep. If you look at the food system, the food system is being degraded because the soil system is being degraded in this country yep. by chemical. If you look at the pharmaceutical country, which is making it very easy to hand out medical medicines like candy, and you have obesity, diabetes, mental health issues. If you take all these... And then you have the race issue and chaos in the streets. You're looking at a society that begins to look a lot like a third world country really fast. It has and been. the tipping point for that, I think, will be the 2024 election, unless there's been a sufficient effort by the Dems to get off the, the soapbox and engage with people in a grassroots way. Yes, sir. And unless the right wing gets off its idea that this is not an insurrectional president, former president and the guy didn't try to take the country by coup he did yes and i think anybody paying mcconnell attention. mcconnell came out today mitch mcconnell, McConnell did. he said it was a violent insurrection and i was i was i don't like mitch mcconnell generally either but fuck him I said that i think it was yeah, me too it was <laughs> like, he accidentally let some humanity escape fuck dude but I mean, want... if, you look at, if you look at there's not so much of a difference if you look at what the republican party's doing with liz cheney and I forget the other representative that have basically yeah. come out and said you have to investigate January 6th. They're yeah. basically purging them like the fucking Communist Party. It's like, you want to call people fascists? Yeah. I mean, please. We so hate cancel culture. Idea, also, cancel this Cheney. Is that it's going to happen at the town and municipal level. I think a lot of interesting young people yes. are going to run for office yep. at the town and municipal level and yep. state level, state representative yes. level. 
Yes. I think we should, we, I think a fractionalized country that looks a lot more like Europe is in our destiny in the next 50 years. I think that's Europe, good. Europe was a unified, was a, is now a unified block with the exception of Britain after World War II, after that, uh, you know, the European Federation is, once, is what it was once called. That came because they realized we're better together. So the United States, I think, has got to go through a period of disintegration. I've said it in my book, and I'll, I've stuck by it. Seven years later, after I wrote the book, I'm still saying, I think there's going to be a political coup. I think there'll be a period of pretty dark, what will look like fascism. I think there's going to be increasing street violence. I think there's going to be a big replacement of what we consider to be employment, and then we're going to have to figure it out. And I think it's going to last about the next 20 to 30 years because it took 20 or 30 years for us to get here. Yeah. So that's what I think. That's why I live in a real place. That's why I'm armed. That's why I can grow my own food. Right. And that's why I try to avoid crowds. So, yeah. you know, and people will call me a nutcase too, but I'm being very, these are very reasonable positions to have. I think, you know, I think so too. Famous Chinese philosopher, and I'll end on this, said during his time, the warring period of China, they said, Go, they went to Lao Tzu and they said, what do we do? People are insane. And Lao Tzu said, best thing to do right now is to avoid the princes and the paupers and head for the mountains. Right. So don't align yourself with necessarily with, you know, uh, violent reactionary groups on the street that want to disintegrate society. And don't align yourself with ultra right wing groups that somehow want to reestablish, you know, America as apple pie 1950. Grow your, learn to take care of yourself and not rely on the system. That's my answer. Right. right. I agree. I agree very much. And, uh, you know, we had done that and moved up to Mendo and, and really gotten into gardening, canning, um, and, and self-sufficiency. And then the goddamn world didn't end. So we moved back to Santa Rosa to the city. So our kids could go to a good school, but it's just funny how, uh, you know, the moment we moved back, all of a sudden it's like, ah, shit, it seems like maybe we should have just been up there the whole time. And again, I'm not also, I'm not a doom and gloomer. I'm not a prepper, but what we saw, I was just so lucky in that I'm constantly scouring the news and I'm, I'm a pretty activated forward thinking individual. It was really transparently obvious, you know, what the writing on the wall is when the COVID lockdown first hit, I was just lucky that I saw what was going on in China. The moment it moved to Italy, I went and I didn't panic shop and I didn't buy out any category of anything. I'm not that type of person. I want everybody to have food, but I did go immediately and buy a 50 pound bag of rice and a 50 pound bag of beans and more than a month worth of dried and, and canned food and some other supplies. And then lo and behold, uh, you know, a week and a half later when COVID hit the U S all the store shelves were empty. And we, when we see that and we realize that, if just for a moment the trucks or the trains stop or the ships stop, we literally go from this really fun um, country where you can navigate almost without thinking, provided you have just a little bit of money in your bank card or a little bit of cash on you, to an incredibly dire circumstance where there is just no food on the shelves. And it well, happens the, almost the, the turn of a dime. The NAFTA Truckers Union, what was formerly NAFTA, North America and Mexico, trucking unions meeting is in June. So... Just uh, keep to your to the point you're making. I mean, keep an eye on it. Wow. Supply chains, and maybe talk about it. We should talk about supply chains next time we talk. Supply chains are everything. They're not yep. foolproof in this country or anywhere else. They've been neglected for a long time in the way of why are we not applying uh, AI and blockchain, all that good stuff to supply chains. There are people that are doing it, I know. But those, those are the priorities about making the difference at the level of consuming durables and consuming ordinary um 
food items. Like I, I can say I live out here in the middle of nowhere and I'm going to grow my own food. But what about people that live in the middle of the city? We, exactly. I've questioned that a lot during COVID. Like, oh my God, imagine if you lived in an apartment building in downtown LA. I mean, what was your life like? Horrific. I think that's you know, why a lot of people in the-, in the I'm not positive to anybody that, oh, I have it hard. I don't have it hard. No. I mean, there are challenges living in a place like this, sure. But I don't have to deal with, with 4,000 people in a tenement building, do I? No. And you can just go outside at any time you want, even well, if there's a lockdown. Yeah. There are trees and snow and things. And I think that's why a lot of people in the more left-leaning, larger cities really have gotten kind of even more reactionary and, and hysteric in their communications with people because- I mean, if you lived in New York, if you lived in Manhattan, COVID is a whole different beast and it's really real because you've been in a 10 by 10 building for two years, right? Whereas people in, in rural America, if you live on a few acres, you don't really, you haven't really seen it and COVID doesn't look as, as quite as the same of an emergency because you can just go outside. Oh, okay. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Um, so yeah, what uh, I think that's pretty good. We did about an hour and a half and... Okay, there you are. You're freeze for a minute. Yeah, we did about an hour and a half. And I think that uh, the only issue so far I've been having with this podcast with everybody is that we dial down into so much and so much interesting dialogue that we could possibly do this for five or six hours. And so we're going to have to keep cutting it up into little chunks because we all have lives to live as well. Um, I'd love to ask you to maybe read something. If there's something from your book that maybe can leave us with a little bit of uh, a summation of kind of of the part of where do we go from here or what are some solutions? Because I know you talk about uh, personal agency, appeals to love and not romantic love, but actually, you know, the love for our species and, and our fellow human beings. Well, with romantic love, certainly. So maybe um, if there's something you can leave us uh, uh, from the book and then we'll wrap it up. I'll let you throw out your socials and then we'll uh, move on with our day. I'm looking at the people I thanked at the end of the book, and I'm realizing that um, most of them are still in my life. That's a good thing. Awesome. Um, I mean, I, you know, I just, uh, I don't know what to leave you with, but I would say. Uh, well, if you don't want to read, you can just, uh, you can just drop one on us as well. Drop some truth, truth, truthiness. Just, you Whatever you're feeling. So uh, I, I always I'll like to try to let's, let's end the show. Let's end the show on, on somewhat of an up note because I just want to keep anyone from uh, who's watching from hanging themselves. Here, here, in the belt. Here's, here's what I'll end on. I'll end on a classical reference, right? So okay. in in uh, Odysseus, in Odysseus in the Odyssey, um, there's this pivotal moment where Odysseus is drowning and he's saved by the goddess Eno, and she says to him, "If you grab a hold of my scarf, you can it'll it'll float you and you get to the shore, or you're going to drown with your boat." And what's funny is that um, literary types, like Salman Rushdie probably, um, he will point out that this is a pivotal moment in the human narrative because we see a character struggling with, do I follow the fates, e.g. God and die, or do I follow luck, magic, the goddess, and swim for it? And I think if, I would, if I'm going to drop anything poetic, it's that, is that now's the time to swim with the goddess. It's not the time to hang on to the fucking hull of the ship and go down to the bottom of the drink. Right. You know, and yes, I think so if, if you're going to do anything, if we're going to do anything right now, I think we have to start believing in a bit of magic again. You know? Yes, sir. That's the well, that's unexpected, but I, I find myself in agreement with that. I do. And uh, yeah. I really appreciate you I taking this time. Are you curveball? <laughs> well, yeah, your, the, your unpredictability is another thing I really enjoy about our discussions. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Anytime.
Uh, you want to just give a shout out to your okay, Insta link? Do you want to give a shout out to your Insta, your LinkedIn, your website, or anything else you'd like people to uh, be able to find you by? Yeah, you can look me up online. L-O-U-S-P-R-O-W-E is my nom de guerre, my pen name. You can catch my writing. You can catch me. Um, there's other stuff that I appear in here and there and everywhere. Great. My book, my novel is called Capernaum, about a vet that comes home from Afghanistan. It's published. And Big Apocalypse, you can pick up. Um, Bam. That's it. That's it. That's all I got. Excellent. Okay, great. great. Thank you so much for taking the time for this, and I'm looking forward to uh, the next time we sit down and chop it up. Thank you, Matthew. Brother. <laughs> Thank you as well. Have an Bye awesome guys. day, brother. Okay, bye-bye.